in your direction. We are in, in, in Luke chapter 14, going to pick up where we left off last week. Uh, if you remember, Jesus was at a, a dinner at a, a prominent Pharisee's home on that particular occasion. Um, but at the tail end of this chapter, Luke 14, he is no longer at that house. <clears throat> so we're going to read verses 25 through 35 of, of Luke chapter 14. Now the large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and he's not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up his, all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but, even, but if even salt has become tasteless, with what shall it be seasoned? It is, useless, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And we said before that statement that he ends with, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, is, is kind of a reminder of, hey, pay attention to what I'm saying. Pay attention to what I have just said. It's important. Catch up, get a clue. Um, Jesus left the Pharisee's house, and great crowds followed him. And he knew that a lot of these people were not in it for his spiritual enrichment that he would provide. Some of them hoped to see miracles. Some of them hoped to be fed. Some of them hoped to, to uh, witness all kinds of things. Maybe they expected him to overthrow Rome. You know, they had tried to install him as king once before, and that didn't work. So maybe they would try it again. They had wrong expectations. But Jesus took the advantage when he had a crowd to teach. Not only to teach those who were already following him, um, but to teach those who might be willing to follow him. So... He is making disciples where he can, but he's also instructing those that he already has because he has a limited time, and he has to take advantage of this particular time. So I've titled the lesson Followership, but a lot of times we call it Discipleship. What, what is a disciple anyway? Okay, and it could be a follower. Most of the time, though, we're, we're, it's, it's a little bit beyond that because it's more like a student. Uh, and if we, had to, if we had to use a term that we're familiar with today, it would probably be an apprentice. It's somebody that is, is learning, but he's learning by, not only by taking in instruction, but also by seeing and doing. So he is growing by what he accomplishes. Um, you will find this word in the Old Testament, uh, primarily in Isaiah, uh, where it's rendered instructed or taught. But it's also in the New Testament, 
primarily speaking of those who follow Jesus, but it's also used to talk about those who would follow uh, John the Baptist. And it's also used of those who would follow the Pharisees. So you can find that. And in, in a limited case, it's also used of the 12, the 12 that we call apostles. They're also referred to on several occasions as the disciples. Now, according to the text, Jesus was now speaking to a large crowd that was following along with him. He had been in the Pharisee's house and talking with those who were present, but now he's departed the Pharisee's house and he's talking to a large crowd that is going with him. And he is on a mission, and he's on a trip. If you remember back in, in Luke chapter 2, at the tail end of the chapter where it talked about uh, Jesus and his parents going to Jerusalem, they traveled in a caravan, it says. So a massive group of people that traveled from Bethlehem or not from Bethlehem, but from Nazareth, down to Jerusalem and back, they traveled as a large crowd. That was good for safety. It was also good for child care. It was also you know, good just to have company because it was a long trip. That's also how they managed to forget Jesus back in Jerusalem because they assumed he was with the crowd just like he always was, and it was a couple days out you know, before they noticed that he's missing and they go back and have to find him. But Jesus is traveling with a large crowd on this particular occasion too. He is also headed toward Jerusalem. This particular section of Luke, starting in chapter 9, verse 51, through chapter 19, is called the travel narrative. It's referred to as the travel narrative. So I've marked that particular verse in, in Luke, uh, chapter 9, verse 51. And I've also highlighted a couple of verses that I've given to you there. Um, because he says in, in Luke 9:51, at this time, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, the New American Standard says he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Uh, the ESV said he set his face toward Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead and went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. And if you remember on that particular case, uh, James and John said, you know, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn these guys up? And they don't, want, they don't want him to come there because he's heading for Jerusalem. And Jesus said, no, I came to seek and save people, not to destroy but in Luke chapter 13, verse 22, then Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. John 17, or I'm sorry, Luke 17, 11, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border of Samaria and Galilee. Luke 18, 31 through 34, Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked, insulted, spit upon, flogged, and killed. The very things that, that Blake was reading about in Psalm 22. Jesus is telling them. It's interesting, though, that the very next verse says, The disciples did not understand any of this. And thankfully, we've got the little note right after that. The meaning was hidden from them. Because when I read through it, it sounds pretty clear to me. And you're like, how can you miss it? Well, they were prevented from understanding. And they didn't know what he was talking about. And then in Luke 19, 28 through 29, after Jesus said this, he went on ahead of them going up to Jerusalem. So he is there now. He approaches um, Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives. 
and he sent two of the disciples ahead. They are to go into the town, and that's when they get the colt and bring that colt that had never been ridden to him to ride in a procession of his own. The time that he is honored as he enters Jerusalem. So this is the travel narrative of Luke from chapter 9 through chapter 19. He is on his way uh, to Jerusalem. So Jesus uses a term there that we don't often think of when we talk about husband, wife, son, daughter, mom, dad. He says hate. If somebody doesn't hate his wife, his son, his daughter, his mom or dad, he's not fit to be my disciple. Well, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? I dare say none of y'all have reached that point. Hopefully I haven't reached that point, as I understand the word hate. There's a, if you've got a New American Standard, it probably has a little note, a little footnote down there that says, by comparison to your love for me. That makes a little more sense to me. That my love for Jesus has to be so great, it has to be so great, that my love for Peggy looks like hate in comparison. That's kind of a, that's a wide span, right? Because we usually put hate down on this end of the extreme and love on this end of the extreme. And he's, he's saying, your love for me should be so great, so much greater than any other love, that all other love that you could compare to it would look like hate. Matthew's account, uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, anyone who loves his father or his mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So that comparison is a little bit easier for me to understand. But the way Matthew says it, it's a lot closer on that scale, isn't it? Because Luke, to me anyway, loves out here, hates right here. Matthew says, if you love me more than you love somebody else, then that's the way it ought to be. But if you don't love me more than anyone else, then you're not worthy. You, you don't even measure up. You can't be my disciple because you love somebody else more than you love me. I know it doesn't mean hate because in Matthew chapter 22... Um, verses 37 through 40, when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he says what? Love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. That's the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So we can't hate our neighbor, right? Um, and in John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, love one another. By this all men will know you that you, that you are my disciples if you love one another. So it can't be hate for each other. As a matter of fact, that love one another appears in Romans 13, 8, 1 Peter 1, 22, 1 John 3, 11, and 3, 23, 1 John 4, 7, 4, 11, 4, 12, and 2 John 5. So you kind of get the idea we're to love one another. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had it put in there that many times. Maybe we, uh, we ought to pick up on that. But Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 says we're to love our spouse. 
Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, and 1 Timothy 5, 8, that we are to respect, obey, and take care of our parents. Titus 2, 1 through 8, we are to spiritually and physically nurture our families. So in all of those cases, love applies. So the comparison that Matthew makes is probably the better way to understand it. But the spread that Luke has is probably a good way to compare it. We are to love in all of these cases, but Christians are to love Jesus most of all. He will even say on some occasion, uh, I believe in Luke chapter 12, 49 through 53, that he didn't come here to make peace. Jesus showing up will cause mother to hate daughter, daughter to hate mother, father to hate son, son to hate father, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, etc., etc. Jesus is a dividing point. Many families disagree about Jesus. And they will come to blows about Jesus. They will exile one another because of Jesus. They will forbid somebody from having anything to do with somebody else because of Jesus. So life is, life is not grand when Jesus shows up on the scene because you have to make a choice. Do I love mom and dad more than I love Jesus? The answer better be yes. No. The answer better be no. I better not love mom and dad more than Jesus. I better not love my wife or my husband better than Jesus or more than Jesus. I better not love son or daughter more than Jesus or even grandchildren. You know, they rate higher than children, right? Yeah, but you can't even love those grandchildren more than you love Jesus. Can't be. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, if somebody wants to be a disciple of Christ, we have to reevaluate all of our obligations and all of our relationships because he is now taking priority. The disciple of Christ must choose to put Jesus first above any and every obligation, any and every relationship. He must be first above all relationships and all loyalties, even ourselves. And you know, we're probably worse on ourselves than we are on anybody else, but the Bible's pretty clear. You can't love somebody else unless you love yourself. Well, Jesus deals with that here too. You have to be in a hate relationship with yourself, but that doesn't mean you hate yourself. You know, he's not trying to destroy our self-worth or our idea of self, but we have to get into the position that God wants us in. We have to be in a position of loving Jesus more than we love ourselves. And, and a lot of times that's hard. And, and it's especially hard when you're about 19 or 20 years old, when you know everything. I did. I was the smartest man on earth when I was about 19 years old. I was way smarter than my dad. And my mom. It's amazing how brilliant they got by the time I was 26, though. Right? That often happens. But Jesus is not trying to destroy our self-worth. Just to let us know that we need to put ourselves below him and go from there. Then he throws another one on there. He says, anyone who does not carry his own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What does that mean? Oh, I've got such a mother-in-law, but it's a cross I have to bear. 
my neighbors are such, they're such pests and they're such trouble. Ah, but it's a cross I have to bear. My knee constantly causing me problems, but it's a cross I have to bear. Now what we do? I mean, we pick all kinds of things, and we, it's just a cross I have to bear. Jesus told me I'd have to bear a cross. That is not what he's talking about. It is not a mother-in-law. It is not a neighbor. It's not a job. It's not a sickness. It's not a physical limitation. It's not anything else. Crosses are made for dying. If I am going to bear my cross... That means I am bearing my death. So what does that mean? How do, how do I bear my, my death device every day? Well, that's just it. You climb up on that cross. You die to self and you rise to be Jesus. You live as Jesus in this world. He lives through you but only if you put yourself to death each and every day. Because we make up our minds each day who we are going to serve. We wake up to serve David, or we wake up to serve Jesus. And we make that conscious decision every day. If you don't bear your cross, Jesus says, you can't be my disciple. You have to put yourself to death in order for him to live through you. That's a tough one. Philippians 1, 20 and 21, Paul says here, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. That should be us too. We're not ashamed. We're not ashamed to let Jesus live through us. Then as long as I live, it is Christ who lives through me. And to die, buddy, that's gain. Because if I die, I get to go be with Jesus, which is far better than anything else. We carry our cross to sacrifice all of ourself in order to be all for him. We choose to identify with the crucified Jesus each and every day. Being faithful to this relationship has to take top priority over work, over school, over home, over any institution or any relationship. Now, Jesus tells us who this is available for too, right? He issues this invitation to who? Everybody. In verse 26, he says, anyone. If anyone wants to come. Verse 27, depending on your translation, it may also say anyone, or it may say whoever. So whoever, or anyone, everyone... Anybody that's willing to step up to these conditions, Jesus is offering that invitation. It's open to anyone who will come. Anybody that's willing to meet the requirements. So it's up to us then to do that. Now, to illustrate kind of what he means, that we need to count the cost before we step into this, he gives us two parables where he actually gave this crowd two parables to better understand it. The first parable that he gives relates to a, a person that, in, that wants to build a tower or needs to build a tower. We don't know what kind of tower that is. We don't know what purpose it's going to serve, but that doesn't matter. He needs to build a tower. First thing he does is what? 
he, well, the first thing that he's going to build is a foundation. You're exactly right. But before he ever starts the foundation, what's he going to do? Count the cost. If you're going to build a house, what are you going to do? You're going to figure out if you got the money to make it happen. And then you're going to figure out if you got the resources or if you have what it takes to get the resources, whether that's lumber or, or steel or concrete or block or, and, and, and who can put it up. You know, a lot of us are not skilled at laying block or even hammering a nail. So, you know, you've got to get the resources. You've got, you got to line that up before you ever start. And that's what he says. Because he says, suppose you want to build a tower. First, sit down and estimate the cost. That's the first thing. You know, that's common sense. That's the smart way to do it. You sit down and you calculate the cost before you ever start doing anything else. A lot of us, the house, the first, our first step might be to go out and find somebody that would design the plans for you. And then you would estimate the cost from the plans, right? And then you would come on, uh, talk, start talking to a contractor uh, to look at the plans and say, what's it going to cost to build this house? You put some things in place ahead of time. Because if you don't, if you don't, there's going to be a disastrous outcome and you will be personally embarrassed and publicly ridiculed. There's a church building in Sumter, South Carolina, that when we got there, the only thing that existed was the basement. And they put a roof on it because that's where they ran out of money. It's still that way. The 18, 17, 18 years we were in South Carolina, it stayed that way. The last time we were there, 17 or 18 years later, so that's like 35 years that it has been just a basement. We call it the underground church because that's what it is. You see this little roof on top of a basement. What an embarrassment. And everybody, you see the underground church? Oh yeah, that's weird, isn't it? They got a sign out there so you can find them. But if you were just driving along, if not for the sign, you wouldn't even know they were there. Yes, they have services there, sure do. Not many people worked or lived there or worshiped there. And that's part of the reason they never got beyond just a basement. But they never bothered to count the cost to start with. And what an embarrassment. Public ridicule. And that's Jesus' point. You count the cost ahead of time. The prudent man sits down and he calculates the cost. That way it eliminates somebody hastily reacting. And Jesus' point is that you need to count the cost before you decide to be my disciple. And what is the cost? What is the cost of being Jesus' disciple? Everything. Absolutely all of you. You've got to count the cost. If you react too soon, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to find out you did go too soon. And now that Jesus wants more, you say, oh, I wasn't ready for that. And then you end up bailing out. You didn't count the cost ahead of time. Sit down and count the cost. You know, one of the things that, that, um, that we were taught in Fishers of Men is when, when you've convinced somebody that they need to be baptized, you need to try to talk them out of it. Why would you do that? See if they're committed, yeah, to see if they're truly involved. Because if, if you can talk them out of it, they're not really committed. 
It was an emotional response. But now that they've started to calculate the cost, well, maybe I'm not ready right now. Maybe this is not what I need right now. Jesus is saying, sit down, calculate the cost, and everything is the cost. Once you determine the cost and all the resources, then you determine what your course of action is going to be. Then you determine, okay, I can build this tower or I can't. Okay, I can be his disciple or I can't. Then he turns to a parable about a king, whether to engage in a war uh, against another. He has 10,000 men, and from what he can tell, the enemy that's coming toward him has 20,000 men. Do I want to go out and duke it out with him, or do I not? Well, what does it say he does? He sits down and calculates the cost. He sits down and says, okay, with this many men, these many weapons, these many horses, this is what I think I can do. And this guy is coming at me, well, he's got 20,000 men, he's got twice as many men as I have, well, he has half as many horses, maybe. And he has this kind of weapon or he has that kind of weapon, do I think I can win the battle? So before you go running out attacking this guy, when you have half as many men, you need to sit down. That's what the king said. King did, right? He sat down and calculated the cost. If you think you can win, okay, fine and dandy, then you go on and you engage in the battle. If you don't, then you send a delegation out to meet them before they even get near and say, hey, how about if we uh, come to a little treaty? And under this treaty, we'll agree to these terms. Because that is to your advantage. The key, the key again is, don't rush into it. Sit down, calculate the cost. And in verse 33, it is the same way any of you... Now he's getting personal. You know, before it was anybody or whoever, but now he's talking to the crowd and he says, in the same way any of you... The people that are listening, who does not give up everything, cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus now is drawing his own conclusion, and he's making his own application. There's a rash builder, there's a rash king, they could get into trouble. Count the cost, that way you don't make a false start, and you don't make a hopeless stand. You have everything that you need, and you've counted it ahead of time. In Philippians 3... Paul would say, whatever was to my profit, I now consider as lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything lost compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, anything and everything that is in this world that you have to give up to have Christ, you need to be willing to do it. As a matter of fact, Paul says, no matter what it was I had to give up to have Christ, that's rubbish. It's useless. It doesn't matter because everything is wrapped up in knowing and being with Jesus Christ. The end there, he says, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made good again? Once contaminated, diluted, or changed chemically, salt cannot be restored. 
So what's it worth? What's it worth? It's worth nothing. It's useless. He said it's not, use, it's not worthy of putting on a manure pile. It's just worthy to throw out. That's all you can do with it. Well, the same is true of you and me. As long as we are with Christ, as long as we are crucifying self day by day, as long as everything else is less than Him, as long as Jesus has priority above any and everything, we have usefulness. But as soon as somebody else replaces Christ or something else replaces Christ as number one in our life, we've lost our salt, our saltiness. And then what happens? Well, you're fit for nothing but to be thrown out. We're useless. And it's going to happen. That, that, that judgment will happen whether it's here and now or it's in the final judgment. And we'll determine, Jesus will determine, well, David... You lost it along the way there, bud. You're worthless. I'm throwing you out. Hopefully I wake up to that before the final judgment. Hopefully you wake up to that before the final judgment so that everything, in everything, in every situation, in every relationship, whatever it is in this life, Jesus has the priority. He must be number one. That's the only position that he will take. So, as you go back and you look over this traveling narrative, there are a lot of neat things that Jesus uh, says along the way to get to Jerusalem. He's headed for his crucifixion. He knows that's where he's bound. And yet he teaches the entire way that he goes.